On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, How will we reimagine our spiritual infrastructure for today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Okay, so um, Dr. Remen, if you want to just, uh, for example, just say hello and or what you've had for breakfast or whatever, and we'll get a good voice level. <laughs> I'm yearning for a cup of Starbucks coffee. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> is that you, Chris? It is. <laughs> is Jody there? Jody is here. She's behind Hi, the glass. Jody. Thanks for all the good work. <laughs> we made it. I can tell that this is a much better connection than last time. This you, is completely clear. You sound on this closer. End. Yeah. <laughs> Mitch, how do you, how are you doing? We okay? All right. You want you would like would you like to hear her? Okay. All right. Tell me what you had for breakfast <laughs> or lunch. Uh, what did I No, have it's not for, lunchtime for no, you it's, yet, No, it? no, right. it's not lunchtime okay. out here. Okay. Uh, what did I have for breakfast? I had a protein drink. <laughs> That's <laughs> <breakfast>. very virtuous. <laughs> very virtuous. Yes, and a whole lot of pills. I had okay. them too. <laughs> and a cup of green tea. Oh, there you go. Hang on one minute. Okay. I'm going to just take a tissue out of my uh, right. purse in case I need it. Hang okay. on. Okay, here we go. Let's see. Where are they? Uh, Minnesota, uh, this is the engineer. I uh, do want to give you a, a look ahead that we need to be out of here promptly at half past. Does it rustle? <laughs> okay. Half past Wait 12, a minute. This 12, is, 12, right? is this supposed to run for... Um, okay. Hour and a half. 12.30, is that right? Yeah. 12.30, yeah. Okay, and then we're going to need to be promptly out at that point. Okay, that's okay. fine. Um, completely in the dark about what we're going to be talking well, about. Well, so am I a little bit, because okay. if it's a good conversation, <laughs> it will surprise us. But good. I have lots of notes, and uh, I think I just, I think I just want to talk about, I mean, I want to base our conversation on things you've written, but um, kind of talk about how you see the world and move through the world and some of the observations you make in your work and go from there. And I'll lead us. <laughs> Good. All right. um, so, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think we have to have a particular agenda. And, I, and, and I, my understanding is that this is going to be uh, heavily edited so yeah, that it, it doesn't, I, you know, I can simply say, whoa, wait right. a minute, I didn't quite mean that. It, okay. You can, and it doesn't have to be especially linear. We can oh, we can good. go where we go and and see. <laughs> I'm comfortable already. Okay, I know. <laughs> I thought you would be. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I have to say, this is a little bit unusual for me because I, before, when we were meeting before, I had I had spent the day doing my kind of Vulcan mind meld business, which I do, which is absolutely immersing myself in your writing. So I felt that I was right there with you, and. And and then I had to stop and just put my notes to one side. I came back to my notes, and so I feel a little bit less close than I normally do because I was 
busy with another deadline. But I'm not worried because now I have you in person, and so I was just going right. to say I think the thing is to be uh, for us to be close to one another and not to my writings, which uh, right. some of right. which were done ten years right. ago. Right, right. <laughs> well, and they're just a jumping off point, but it's a way for me to just to come to know you and to kind of have some ideas of, of um, how you think, and so. And I want to start with, with a premise of what you do, and perhaps uh, stated and, and simplified in this sentence, uh, everybody is a story. Talk to me about, just as we start, about what you mean when you say that, how you've come to that observation. Well, um, by listening. I've come to that observation by listening. No two people are alike. No two people have the same disease in the same way. No two people heal in the same way. So you may be an expert, let's say, in diabetes or cancer or Crohn's disease, and every time you meet a new person who is struggling with this disease, that person has a completely different story. (laughs) It has a completely different meaning Hmm. for that person. And a story, of course is the container for meaning. It's a vehicle of meaning. Uh, It's the way that people have shared meaning with one another uh, for generations. It's what holds uh, a culture together. Culture has a story, and every person in it participates in that story. And so story and not facts are the the way the world is made up. The world is made up of stories. It's not made up of facts. Mm. Although we tell ourselves facts to, to piece together the story. Well, the facts are the bones of the story, mm-hmm. if you want to think of it that way. Mm-hmm. The meaning of the story is what gives it shape and inspiration, what allows the story to change the person who hears it and change the person who tells it as well. Mm-hmm. Our, our, our identity is in the story. Not just the facts. Mm -hmm. I mean, the facts are, for example, that I have had Crohn's disease for 52 years. I've had eight major surgeries. But that doesn't tell you about my journey Mm -hmm. and what's happened to me because of that and what it means to live with an illness like this and discover the power of being a human being. All that is how can I put it? It fleshes out mm-hmm. the bones of the story. Hmm. I think you make such an interesting contrast also with the fact that we live with all kinds of stories in our culture. We, there are stories on television, right, or, you know, the forms of entertainment as well as information. Mm-hmm. Um, but that those stories always have beginnings and endings. And you say that, that the stories of our lives, stories as they function in life um, take time. Real stories take time. Mm-hmm. Real stories have no ending and no beginning. Mm. I mean, it, it's simple when you say it, but it still feels like a revelation to say that. Do you know what I mean? But, you know, it's almost like using a diamond for a paperweight to use stories for entertainment. Mm-hmm. Stories um, enable us to live. Um There's a powerful saying that we tell each other stories. Sometimes we need a story um, more than food in order Mm. to live. Mm. 
it, they, they tell us about who we are, what is possible for us, um, what we might call upon. They also remind us we're not alone with whatever faces us. And that there are resources both within us and in the larger world and in the unseen world that may be cooperating with us in our struggle to find a way to deal with challenges. Mm-hmm. You know, something that intrigues me, you, the structure that uh, your books take uh, <laughs> are, are chapters that are stories, and they're stories from your life, and they're stories from your work as a physician. Um, and I'm just curious... Do you, do you uh, do you think that way? Do you process information that way? I think it would be a stretch for most of us. Maybe not. Maybe most of us just never try this. But I think it would be a stretch for us to sit down and put our most basic insights into, as you say, that container of stories. I don't think it would be a stretch at all, actually, no? Krista. <clears throat> How did you me come? For a minute. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> Go ahead. You can do that, too. I can edit that up. How did you come uh, to write story, your books that way? I'm just curious. Well, I, let me just respond okay. to what, okay. the, because there's more to be said about mm. the other. Uh, story is, is a natural um, means of expression for human beings. Human beings have been telling their story, listening to other people's stories, telling stories from their lives to each other, Probably since the very beginning, people sat in caves and told each other stories. Mm-hmm. That's where we get the, both the information and the wisdom which enables us to survive is from stories, not from facts, mm-hmm. from stories. So that, you know, when you say people might have a hard time telling their stories, most people don't get a chance to tell their stories. Right. And the reason that I hear so many stories, I think, is that I, I listen. And it's very hard to find people who really want to hear, really want to know, not to figure out what's wrong with someone or to analyze them or to judge them in any way, but simply to know how it is for another person, mm-hmm. what wisdom they have gathered on their, on their journey through life, what's important to them, what matters. And, you know, whenever there's a crisis like 9-11... Do you notice how the whole of the United States turned towards the stories? I mean, where I in was. Order to, in order, where I was, uh-huh. what happened, what uh-huh. happened in those buildings, yeah. what happened to the people who were connected to the people in mm-hmm. those buildings. Because that is the only way we can make sense out of life is through the stories. Hmm. And the facts are a certain number of people died there, but the stories are about the the greatness of being a human being and the vulnerability of being a human being. Do you have in your own life a particular discipline of writing stories down or or let's say of discerning the contours of the story? <laughs> no. No. Well, do no. you keep a journal or never? Tell, tell me, <laughs> all right, then tell me about the process of writing these books. Well, this was a very funny process because um, 
I didn't, you know, the usual process for writing a book uh, is you write a book proposal. It's sort of right. like writing a grant for a yeah. book. And you have an idea and you, may, you sort of sell your idea. Why is it important to people? Why is it different than all the other books that are out there? Why should some publisher mm-hmm. be, be wanting to partner you in doing this? And I didn't have a, a book proposal, a very old friend of mine, Dean Ornish, who I knew when he was a medical student. Right. Um, I was giving a talk one day to his uh, heart group uh, that he runs at the Claremont Hotel in Berkeley. And um, I always tell stories when I give talks. Uh, I've always been put down for telling stories in the medical profession because this is seen as anecdotal evidence. (laughs) They're one-of-a-kind things, so therefore they don't have scientific rigor or or validity. And so I was telling stories to these people with heart disease to remind them of who they were and uh, their potential to heal. And afterwards, he suggested I send a story in to his agent, which I did. I sent her a story, and, and uh, she then he then called her, apparently, and said, um, you know, uh, this woman has lots of these stories. <laughs> <laughs> Just because what you, do you, you think? Tend to Don't t- you think they were a book, right? <laughs> right? And this is because you he'd heard you illustrate your talks with them. I mean, this is how you teach. I, is that I, right? This is how I teach. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. This is Actually, I don't teach exactly. This is how I remind people of who they are. Hmm. Okay. And um, offer them a larger perspective on their situation than they presently have. Hmm. And so uh, the agent sold this uh, this story mm-hmm. as uh, a book proposal. Just a single story. It was only about a page long. And so I then found an, an editor came out uh, to uh, interview me, and she said, I have no outline. I have no proposal. Write me an outline. Let's sit down. We'll write an outline. I can't write outlines. <laughs> and she got this. Mm-hmm. Very, it took her about a half an hour. She realized I was congenitally unable to write an outline. <laughs> okay. So she said to me, you know, how do you get your outcomes? I mean, when someone comes into your office, they start to tell you their problem. You say, okay, here's the problem. They have to do this. They have to let go of that. They have to readjust their thinking in this way. Should take about three months, ten sessions, and we'll do. Is that what you do? And I said, no. I said, I have no idea where we're going, you know, when, when we sit down together in that first session. She says, well, how do you get your, your extraordinary outcomes? And I said, well, I know how to follow process. And I follow the process with impeccability. We, we, we follow the process together, the patient and I. And where we end up is a place that is so much more profound than anything I could work out in my mind mm. in that first session. And she said, fine, write the book that way. No outline. Write down whatever is important to you. I'll figure it out after I get it. Write me 400 pages. Give it to me by this date. Hmm. So I start from ground zero. I buy a computer and I learn how to use it. I'm not a writer. I'm an author. Mm -hmm. It's a very different thing. Hmm. Okay. And so I'm sitting in front of the computer. I've I've got my lessons under my belt. I don't know how to write a book, but I, I know how to tell a story. So I, I tell the commuter a story, and then I can remember another one. I tell the computer that story. <laughs> I remember another one. Okay. And it's kind of fun, you yeah. know? And so for, four, for, for about seven or eight, maybe even nine months, 
I tell the computer stories. And as I tell the computer more stories, I can remember more stories. Mm. It's like peeling an onion mm. until finally, because I'm doing this four or five hours a day, I can remember the very, very early stories from my childhood. Mm. And it was an amazing experience. But of course, I missed the deadline. I didn't write down a book. So I sent in these 400 pages of stories to my editor, and I said, I'm sorry. I now know it's a book about healing. Right. And the, I've got all the illustrations. Here they are. And it'll take me six weeks to write the book around them. Mm. Sorry to miss your deadline. She writes back. She says, um, stop writing. <laughs> I say, why? She says, it's done. Hmm. And I am horrified. I say, it's a book of stories? And she says, yes. And I said, I can't write a book of stories. And she says, why not? And I'm so upset that I, I was stammering. I said, it has no footnotes. She says, well, why does it need footnotes, Rachel? And I'm, I tell her that if it has no footnotes, it has no credibility. And there's this silence. That's the doctor in you, isn't it? That's the, the scientist in mm -hmm. our whole culture. Mm -hmm. And she says to me, I think you will, you're about to discover, Rachel, what real credibility looks like. Hmm. And this was true. I mean, I, I, felt, I felt not good enough because all I had were the stories of my life. And what I discovered in the past 10 years since I wrote Kitchen Table Wisdom is that it's all you need. Hmm. And it's all anyone else needs also. Well, it's all any of us have, isn't it? That's all we have in mm -hmm. the stories of our lives and the great grace of being able to listen to other people tell us the stories of their lives. Hmm. The kitchen table, we used to gather at the kitchen table and find there through the sharing of our stories, our experiences, the wisdom to live a good life. You grew up, I believe, as you, you say, surrounded by doctors and one mystic. <laughs> doctors, a few nurses, and, and a few one nurses. mystic. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> that would have been your Orthodox rabbi grandfather. Mm -hmm. And student of Kabbalah. Student of Kabbalah before <laughs> it was a fashion trend. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> oh, and he was a flaming mystic, and he was also a magnificent storyteller. Well, what do you mean when you say he was a flaming mystic? I mean, describe that to me. What that means? Oh, it means many different things. Mm -hmm. It can mean a scholarly thing, like the study of uh, a school of mysticism like Kabbalah. But it's also a way of seeing the world. My father, my father, my grandfather felt that um, the world was in constant communication with him, that there was a spirit in the world, a God in the world, that um, uh, could be spoken to and could... Um, respond at all times, mm. that there was a presence in the world that was holy and sacred, and that he was in constant dialogue with this as he went through the events of his day. Um, I think mysticism can be defined in many different ways. I didn't know that my grandfather was a mystic. No. I just knew that the world that he lived in was the world I wanted to live in, too. Mm. 
you recount this this uh, idea of of the Kabbalah, which I, I had known, but I don't know, I think maybe because you're a storyteller, it, it was very vivid for me that this idea that at the beginning of the creation, the holy was broken up, right? Oh, uh, the story Flew of the first day of the world. <laughs> at the beginning of things. And you know... The story of the birthday of the world, yes. Is that how he told it to you? <laughs> yes, exactly. How, did you, how, um, how would you describe it? Actually, Krista, this, this was my fourth birthday present, mm. this story. Mm. And if you'd like, I'll tell it to yes, you. Yes, do. Yeah. Um, so this is the story of the, bir- the birthday of the world in the beginning. There was only the holy darkness, the Ein Sof, um, the source of life. And then in the, in the course of history, at a moment in time, um, this world, the world of a thousand thousand things, emerged from the heart of the holy darkness as a great ray of light. And then perhaps because this is a Jewish story, there was an accident. (laughs) (laughs) And the vessels containing the light of the world, the wholeness of the world, broke. And the, the wholeness of the world, the light of the world, was scattered into a thousand, thousand fragments of light. And they fell into all events and all people where they remain deeply hidden until this very day. Hmm. Now, according to my grandfather, the whole human race is a response to this accident. We are here because we are born with the capacity to find the hidden light in all events and all people, Hmm. to lift it up and make it visible once again, and thereby to restore the innate wholeness of the world. This is a very important story for our times, mm. that we, we heal the world one heart at a time. Mm. And this, this task is called tikkun olam in Hebrew, re- restoring Is there a the connection world. between the story of the sparks and tikkun olam in Jewish tradition? Is, are they bound together? That, that they're exactly the same. I didn't know. I, didn't, I did not tikkun know that those two come is the together. Yeah, right. it's the restoration of the world. Right. And this is, of course, a collective task. Hmm. It involves all people who have ever been born, all people presently alive, all people yet to be born. We are all healers of the world. Hmm. And that story opens a sense of possibility. It's not about healing the world by making a huge difference. It's about healing the world that touches you. Right. That's around you. That world and that to which you have And that's where proximity. our power is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, many people feel powerless in today's situation. Right. I mean, when you when you use a phrase like that, uh, just out of nowhere, heal the world. It it mm-hmm. sounds like a dream, right? And a nice, sweet, ideal, completely impossible. It's a very old story. It comes from the 14th mm. century, mm. and it's a different way of looking at our power. And I suspect it has a I suspect it has a, a key for us in uh, our present situation, a very important key. Say some some more about that. Think that through for me. Well, 
You know, I don't want to talk politics here. I'm not a person who is a, a, a political person in the usual sense of that word. But I think that we all feel that we're not enough to make a difference. Mm-hmm. That we need to be more somehow either wealthier or more educated or somehow or other uh, um, different mm-hmm. than the people we are. And according to this story, we are exactly what's needed. And to just wonder about that a little, what if we were exactly what's needed? Mm. What then? How would I live if I was exactly what's needed to heal the world. Mm. And I think these kinds of questions are very important questions. And exactly what's needed, going back to where we began our conversation, when what you have to work with is precisely the given story of your life. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, the story, people will say about a story like uh, the story of Takut Olam, uh, the birthday of the world, Well, you know, how can I make a difference when I'm so wounded myself? Mm -hmm. How can I make a difference when I feel so not enough, you know? Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's our very wounds that enable us to make a difference. We are the right people just as we are. For example, um, my own wounds, my own sufferings, have uh, enabled me to feel compassion for the sufferings of others. Without my suffering, I wouldn't understand the the suffering of others or be able to connect to them. My loneliness enables me to recognize the loneliness in other people, even when it's covered over, to find them where they have become lost in the dark and sit with them and to know that just by sitting with them, eventually they will find what they need in order to move forward. You know, um, there was another story um, in my family. Uh, my grandmother, uh, the, my grandfather's wife, mm-hmm. the Rebitson, <laughs> my grandfather's mm. wife. Uh, in Russia, they were quite poor, and they often fed members of the community being the rabbi's home. People came there. So my grandmother uh, was used to making things stretch and go a long way. And in this country, her icebox was filled with food when they came over to America because she had been hungry in in Russia. The the kitchen was the center of the house. The icebox was filled with food. Every nook and cranny was full to the brim. And it was told in my family that uh, if someone opened the door of the, the icebox with, uh, without caution, an egg might fall out and break on the kitchen floor. <laughs> and my grandmother's response to these accidents was always the same. Apparently, she would look at the broken egg with satisfaction and say, Aha! Today we have a sponge cake. (laughs) (laughs) And so perhaps this is about our wounds, Mm. you know, Mm. that um, the fact is that uh, life is full of losses and disappointments. And the art of living is to make of them something that can nourish others. Mm. 
And, you know, when I first was diagnosed, I was 15 years old. With Crohn's disease? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the doctors came and told me that I had this incurable disease. Uh, there was no, nobody knew what caused it. I would have multiple surgeries, and I could expect to be dead by the time I was 40. Mm. Not my dream of the future mm -hmm. as a 15-year-old. How many years uh, ago I, was that now? Oh, that is 52 years yeah, now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, I went into shock. Mm -hmm. And my mother was with me, and she did not... Um, not comfort me or cuddle me. She took my hand and she reminded me of this story. And she said, Rachel, we will make a sponge cake. <laughs> and it's taken me a long time to find the recipe that's mine, mm. my own recipe for this. Mm. But I had a sense of what might be possible and that I needed to look to find the way for myself. And that's what a story can do. Hmm. You know, I had never met my grandmother, but oh, you just story, heard this about her? No, okay. This she died long before I was uh, born. Uh -huh. She died young, uh -huh. but this story about her gave me a map for my life. Sure, it that's says the so power much, of a story. Yeah. yeah, I want to. Um, I want to turn a corner, but before I do, I want to tell you a story briefly, which oh, is just that, that I, I went home having, having all this in my head, and <clears throat> my son, who's seven, has a, something of a mystical bent, I think. I mean, children do, in a way, but he really, he's got a lot of depth, and he's thinking hard, and I told him this story about the beginning of the universe, and, you know, about the sparks and the holy flying out, and he, he just, he just listened to me so raptly, and he said... Mm -hmm. I like that. <laughs> and I could yeah. see that it had, it had planted itself, and he was going to carry that with him. It was so wonderful. Mm -hmm. But you know what is so wonderful, too, Krista, is that I was told this story, um, let's see, uh, 63 years ago, and my response to it was exactly the same. Hmm. <laughs> and that's that's very important about stories. They touch something that is human in us and is probably unchanging. Perhaps this is why, you know, parables, uh, the important knowledge is passed through stories mm -hmm. because children love stories. And the child in all of us loves stories. <laughs> and I'm not talking about made-up stories. No. Yeah. I'm talking about real stories. Mm -hmm. Now, you, let's talk about what you've done with your life and, um, you know, the particular places you've taken your love for stories. I mean, you became a doctor. And um, initially you were working, you were a pediatrician, working with premature babies, right? And weren't you one of the first women on the faculty at Stanford, at the medical school? Is that right? I was one of the fewer women, okay. not one of the first women, mm -hmm. one of the fewer women. We certainly were in the minority, uh, the distinct minority, mm -hmm. back there uh, in 1965. And then you, you changed course in medicine. I mean, tell me something of where you went. And how your interest changed? Well, I'm not sure if my interest changed. I just realized I could live by what was important to me. Um, I was a philosophy major in school, 
which my father used to laugh about, you know, my daughter, the philosopher, mm-hmm. <laughs> and also worry about because how, how would right. a person make a living right. <laughs> as a philosopher? And I almost didn't get into medical school because I didn't major in a science. Hmm. And I had put all that in my back pocket in order to make a difference in the world, you know, to to use myself well and to make a difference in the world. My plan, of course, was that I was going to die by the time I was 40. I need to use that time well. (laughs) Right. So so that was the game plan, Uh Chris. And um, in about 1972, Esalen Institute was... it was in its its heyday. Its heyday had been going on for about seven or eight years before that, I think, too. And uh, the, what was called in those days the human potential movement mm-hmm. uh, was emerging there. I mean, these ideas of what it means to be a human being, that there is an inner life in people, uh, all these things that we accept as, well, haven't people always believed these things right, or right. known these things? No, people have not. Mm-hmm. And so all of this was emerging, this whole new way of seeing a human being and um, everything that uh, a human being participates in, uh, a whole new way of seeing these things as well, seeing illness, seeing health, seeing love, uh, all of these things, seeing parenthood. I mean, a whole new way of seeing what, what are the tasks of being a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was invited down there as part of a research study. They invited 12 uh, physicians. I was a young professor of, of pediatrics at Stanford. Uh, and they invited 12 physicians, men and me. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and we went, went down there for a couple of years. And uh, we were funded to go down there and to spend a weekend a month with one of the seminal thinkers of the human potential movement, Gregory Bateson. Ah, right. Um, people like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and in spending this time, this three days with them, they would share with us their thinking, the, the things that they had written about and published, and also their private thinking about the nature of the world and the nature of human beings. Mm-hmm. And our task was to take this information, like, for example, George Leonard taught us something called a keto that nobody had ever heard of. <laughs> and this was all about um, how you meet with an opponent. And we were to take that information and look at our own expertise, our, the fields of, of, of medicine, disease, illness, and see, do these things have any application to the work that we do? Hmm. And so we would spend the month between the times we were down at Esalen talking about these new ideas and working out a new medicine <laughs> that was based on the power of a human being. Hmm and not the power of science, right, necessarily. Mm-hmm. And at the end of this two years, uh, all the men went back to their practices of medicine pretty much, and I quit Stanford hmm. okay. <laughs> and felt that I wanted to devote myself to the, the building of a new medicine that was good enough and large enough to really serve human beings 
given that I now had a deeper sense of what it meant to be a human being right. and what a human life might be about. Hang on a moment. Okay. I am losing my earphones. Okay. We can't have that. I got them back. Okay. <laughs> now, okay, and I... I did, did you train also as a psychiatrist or... or no. Or, but you have really become a professional <laughs> listener as well as a physician, haven't you? Is that well, fair? I, I, I would say yes. I'm trained, but I have no credentials. Mm-hmm. Um, I have spent, I would say, 3,000 hours in humanistic psychology workshops. Okay. Um, learning various techniques, imagery... Um, symbol, symbol work, santre work, poetry, art, anything that would enable people to, to discover the strength in them, discover who they are. And so I have a very extensive training, but I don't have a degree in okay. psychology or psychiatry. I have taught in schools of psychology, I've taught health psychology, and and all of this, but I am I'm a physician. I'm an MD. It seems to me that you have, at the same time that you have worked as a had a medical practice, worked as a physician, and specializing, I believe, in working with people who have cancer. Is that right? Yes, that that all came about. You know, I think I've made very few decisions in my life. It's like I find myself in a situation, and it's very clear what the next step is. <laughs> and I take that step, and I think this is basically my modus operandi for, for leading my life. But um, I wanted, well, we had grants to study the doctor-patient relationship. Okay. And then a new administration came in, and we couldn't get the final piece of funding to finish this work. And I spent six months writing grants and then ran out of money. Hmm. I was actually on unemployment hmm. for about three or four months, and I ran out of money. And people had been calling me up because I'd been writing about these things and saying, can I come and talk to you about oh, my, my problem? And I'd say, and no, other no, no, physicians, I don't do right? that. I'm not a psychologist. Mm-hmm. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't do that. Mm-hmm. No, these are people, sick people, oh. friends, uh, friends of friends, okay. all sorts of people. And then when I ran out of money, I said, well... <laughs> I guess I do this. <laughs> so I found a little office on a houseboat in Sausalito, the first office. And a few people came by. And I decided I would go and speak to the, my colleagues in the medical community and tell them that I wanted to uh, work with sick people and with their emotional issues Same. and uh, their struggle to live with disease and also to recover from disease. And most of the physicians in the community said, terrific, who has the time to talk to these people? Right. You know, once mm-hmm. I, I've run out of treatments, I have nothing, nothing more to offer anyone. And that's another whole story in and of itself, of course. And let me send you over my patients. And within months, I had a completely full practice, and most of the people were people with cancer. Hmm. And I began to work as a person who focused my efforts on working with people with cancer. Why do you think that most of the people 
your colleagues ended up sending you were people with cancer. Was that a particular life experience that they weren't equipped to handle in its fullness? I think that the hospice movement is fairly recent. Okay, so this was before hospice. This is before that. So that people really did not know how to deal with people who were struggling with the possibility of death. Mm -hmm. I mean, you knew how to treat the cancer. That's what we were trained to do in medical school. We're trained differently now. Okay. But we were trained to do this in medical school, to deal with the cancer. Mm -hmm. But the issues of the person with the cancer was something that we would refer people to psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. But, you know, these aren't crazy people. No, right, right. (laughs) You know, these aren't people who have psychological illness. These These are people who are confronted with a very, very challenging life situation Mm -hmm. and who need to mobilize their full strength and the strength of their families in order to meet with these things. And nobody knew how to do that. Nobody had the tools to do it even. So we started writing poetry and drawing pictures and doing imagery and of enabling people to find within themselves the direction and the strength they needed to live well despite cancer. It seems, um, as you say, you, you probably didn't plan this. I'm sure you didn't plan this, but but what you said earlier about how we're all given the lives we have and that that's good enough and uh, and even what's wrong with us is part of, of what we have. It seems like it's been really important in your medical practice and also in how you've helped other physicians, how you've reflected on your profession, that you also have struggled in your life with this debilitating illness of Crohn's disease, which you were told was fatal um, Mm -hmm. also earlier. But, but Krista, I don't think it's what's wrong with us. I don't see, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes what appears to be a catastrophe Mm -hmm. over time becomes a strong foundation from which to live a good life. Hmm. It's possible to live a good life, even though it isn't an easy life. And I think that's one of the best-kept secrets in America. <laughs> right, you, 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 but, you say <laughs> the pursuit of perfection has become a major addiction of our time. I mean, we throw that word addiction around a lot, but I've never heard anyone talk about our pursuit of perfection as an addiction. Well, I think perfection is the booby prize in life, actually. Mm. Hmm. It's very isolating, very separating, and it's also impossible to achieve. Mm -hmm. So you're always struggling to become something you're not and could never possibly become because you're a human being. (laughs) Right. But, you know, many... This is one of the great... It sounds funny. I was going to say the great joys of working with people on the edge of life. The view from the edge of life is so much clearer than the view that most of us have. Um, In all these years of of working with people with cancer, I've never heard anyone say to me, you know, um, if I die of this disease, I'm going to miss my Mercedes. Mm -hmm. And this is, these are sometimes people that the pursuit of the Mercedes and the lifestyle that it represents have been the focus of their lives up until the time they were diagnosed. Mm-hmm. The focus of their lives. People have discovered that the Mercedes is the booby prize. 
that what seems to be important is much more simple and accessible for everybody, which is um, who you've touched on your way through life, who's touched you, uh, what you're leaving behind you in the hearts and minds of other people um, is far more important than whatever, whatever wealth you may have accumulated. Now, what is your understanding of why that simple truth that we've all heard said, and it makes so much sense, why is that hard for us for human beings to take seriously before we get to that edge of life, or for many of us? I think we get distracted. We get distracted by stories other people have told us about ourselves, Hmm. that we are not enough, that we will be happy if we have material goods, that material goods will keep us safe. Uh, None of these stories are true. What is true is that what we have is each other. And again, you know, that's so, it's lovely and it's clearly true and yet we don't... We don't live there. We don't live there. And this is why I see people with cancer and other people who have encountered very difficult experiences in their lives as teachers. Teachers of wisdom, it's as as if the wisdom to live well is, at the moment, the repository of this wisdom are the sick people in our culture, Hmm. the ill people in our culture. Do you think that's particular to our culture? Is that true in every culture? I don't know. Mm -hmm. This is the culture I know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know. It's such a counterintuitive idea in this culture, though, isn't it? I think many people have said, uh, and you know, uh, by the way, the the work with cancer started in, as a, a one-on-one work in my office, mm-hmm. but um, in about 1984 or 5, I met Michael Lerner um, quite by accident, and together and with some other people, we started something called the Commonwealth Cancer Help Program. Mm which was featured on Bill Moyer's Healing in the Mind in 1993, as you know. And the innovation that was Michael's... uh, Michael is a very extraordinary and brilliant social reformer. And the innovation that uh, he put forward was that community was a tool of healing, that people suffering from the same illness could help one another to heal and to live well. This is way before support groups were, Mm -hmm. you know, available in almost every hospital and in many other places. Mm. Um, And so we started one of the very, very early support groups in the United States. We took people with cancer to the edge of of, of the United States, right on a cliff overlooking the Pacific Ocean, and spent a week living together exploring the meaning of this illness for each person and enabling people to find a sense of direction. We're still doing this. We've done 128 week-long retreats at Commonweal. But this is where I, I discovered the gift of living close to someone at the edge of life, mm. of living with people at the edge of life, and discovering that when the chips are down, what's important is not what we have thought was important. Hmm. And maybe you could find out about that 
without needing to have cancer <laughs> right. as a, a tuition prize, you know. Right, right. What have you learned through your work with other physicians, your attempt to listen to other physicians and to kind of, let's say, work on the healing of the field of medicine? Talk yeah. to me about that. You know, I, um, I have spent the last, oh, 13 years uh, working not with people with cancer but with physicians yeah. and with medical students. Now, how did that come about that you started doing that uh, actively? Well, there are a couple of, again, you know, the next step appears. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, In listening to the people with cancer at the retreats, I would hear stories about their experience with the medical system Mm -hmm. and with the people in it. And um, every so often, someone would go back and tell their doctor what they had experienced, um, Uh, at the retreat, and the doctor would call, and I was the medical director. I am the medical director still of the retreat. Um, And the doctor would say, aren't you doing anything like this for us? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I began to realize how wounded I had been by my training. The training is abusive. It's very, very, very difficult experience. Medical school. It's a 24-7 medical school Mm -hmm. and medical training. Mm -hmm. It goes on for years, Mm -hmm. seven, seven, eight years, you know. And I began to realize how I had been healed by these people with cancer, how I had moved from a person focused on curing and truly coming to understand that we are all healers of one another, mm-hmm. that people have been healing each other since the beginning, and that my power to cure was a small part of my power to help people. What was your and feeling? And wanting, yeah. to, wanting to help my profession as well. The people who go into medicine are extraordinary. You know, I, I developed a course called The Healer's Art, um... Gosh, that was 1992. Mm-hmm. And we, I taught it at UCSF. Uh, it's a very unusual course. It's an experiential course. You usually don't do these things, certainly not back then in medical school. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's about enabling young people to recognize that who they are is as important as what they know in terms of what they're going to be able to make a difference in people's lives. And uh, I taught this for all these years at UCSF. And then about four years ago, um, we uh, uh, disseminated it to Yale Medical Mm -hmm. School, where it worked just as powerfully as it did at UCSF. And last year, 33 medical schools around the United States taught it. And this year, we expect 42 or 43 Mm. of the 140 medical schools in the United States to be offering this course to their students. And what is it adding that was not there before? It is validating for students the human agenda in illness. It, It reminds them that healing is a different relationship than a curing relationship. And it reminds them of their power to make a difference through their human response and connection to their patients. It's basically, it basically reminds the students of the lineage of medicine 
you know, I happen to see medicine as a spiritual path. That's my personal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that medicine is a spiritual path, which is um, characterized by compassion, harmlessness, service, reverence for life, uh, courage and love. Um, the, the basic qualities of the Hippocratic Oath are not scientific qualities. They're the qualities of human relationship, and they are spiritual qualities, very profound spiritual qualities. And we, we remind the students of the lineage, and this is young students, and we enable them to see that they belong to it exactly as they are that they are already the right people to become physicians. All they need to do is learn the science and learn the facts without allowing themselves to be changed by that process in any way. What, what is it in that process that, I mean, it seems ironic, uh, and the stories you tell about how destructive medical school can be um, seem ironic. We do think of people who go to medical school, as you say, as extraordinary and as people who are. are giving themselves over to this profession that is about healing. And what you describe is, a, is an experience that is often very we learn devastating. How to cure. Okay. Yeah. Now, this is changing. I mean, obviously, right. it is. It's interesting. 10 years isn't it? ago, yeah. 10 years ago, this course would not be in, in, in any of these schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, UCSF was forward-looking enough to give it a home, mm-hmm. you know. But I think the world is changing. Um, I think we're recognizing the limitations of our science. Our science, you know, the, that, that little phrase, living better through science, mm-hmm. there's no question that we live better through science. Mm-hmm. But to live well is going to take something more than that. I mean, if I look at myself, without the eight major surgeries and the many medications, and I still take many medications that keep me alive, I wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. But with only these things, I'd be an invalid. Okay. Right. I I wanted to ask a minute ago when you said you think about medicine as a spiritual path, and yet it seems that... Medicine is also a science, at least in our culture, and it mm-hmm. seems that at some point and somehow the science overwhelmed or the scientific mindset, uh, even among those of us who are outsiders, who how we view science, overwhelmed whatever spiritual element there is in that. Well, you know, you have to understand how natural that is. I mean, mm-hmm. when... When I, I, I tell you about myself, when I was a child, I had severe otitis media and developed um, uh, an, ear infection. an abscess, okay. an abscess mm. in the bone of my skull. Mm, and um, sulfur drugs were available in the nick of time. Mm. And that power was a very heady power. Mm. We could there was insulin for people with diabetes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you should have to think about what this meant. Mm-hmm. All of this, you've seen people. all of this in your lifetime. Oh, my God, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this meant a huge amount for people. We thought we could cure everything. Right. But it turns out that we can only cure a small amount of human suffering. The rest mm-hmm. of it 
is um, the rest of it needs to be healed, and that's different. Okay. It's different. Yeah. Um, I, I think science defines life in its own way, but life is larger than science. Okay. Life is filled with mystery, courage, heroism, all love, all these things that we can witness but not measure or even understand, mm -hmm. but they make our lives valuable anyway. And I would say the destructive aspects of life are also mysterious and unmeasurable, right? I mean, we can also observe evil. and I think that's true. Of course that's true. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the, the issue is not to eradicate evil. I'm not sure evil can be eradicated. Mm -hmm. I think it's part of the human condition. Mm -hmm. The issue is to commit yourself to what's important to you. Okay. Yeah. I want to... You, um, you question the, the term objectivity that is part of a scientific framework. I, I think that word, as a journalist, I'll say, it's also, <laughs> you know, it's a value that's been held up in many disciplines in our culture. And it's coming into question uh, yeah. in many disciplines. And, and I'm just yeah. curious about, you know, is it enough? Or, you know, are we kidding ourselves when we say we're objective? And if we're kidding ourselves, then do we need to look at it all over again, I think? You know, you, you make this interesting statement. You say objectivity, and you're, you're talking about a doctor also, makes us far more vulnerable emotionally than compassion or a simple humanity objectivity separates us from the life around us and within us. I mean, it's so interesting. I think objectivity also make us, makes us vulnerable to burnout mm -hmm. because in order to feel the satisfaction, inspiration of our work, we need to be touched by it right. as human beings. Right. Then, then the work transforms us and, and grows us and otherwise, it does not. But I think it's very interesting. You know, um, objectivity is cognitive right. in, in a funny kind of way, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but the thing that seems important is that in order to understand life, we need to look at it through many different dimensions. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes we understand another person the best and know how to help them the best when we are not objective. <laughs> you know, well, there's another simple statement for you, but, but well, we don't but always look, act on that. Yeah. Objectivity is a bias, like right. anything else. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the funniest story in, in uh, I think this one is in Kitchen Table Wisdom, is... Um, <laughs> this happened at, at Sloan Kettering many, many years ago uh, when I was a, um, uh, an intern, first-year uh, doctor. Um, and we had a man come into the hospital um, to die. And, you know, people used to come into the hospital to die. There wasn't a hospice movement then, mm -hmm. so that when, if your care was too difficult to achieve at home, you were admitted to the hospital to die. And this man came in. Uh, with riddled with cancer, he had um, uh, an osteosarcoma, 
And uh, his bones looked like Swiss cheese. All these lesions were cancer, and there were big snowballs of uh, cancer in his lungs. And in the two weeks or so that he was with us in the hospital, um, all of these lesions disappeared. <laughs> and they never, came, they never came back, Krista. Now, were we in awe? Certainly not. We were frustrated. <laughs> Obviously, someone had misdiagnosed him. So we sent the slides out to um, pathologists all over the country. And the pathologists sent back the slides saying classic osteogenic sarcoma. You know. So then we had grand rounds. And the slides were shown, the x-rays were shown, the man himself was shown. And the conclusion of this large group of doctors was that the chemotherapy, which had been stopped 11 months before, had suddenly worked. Now, the embarrassing part of this story is that I believed this for the next 15 years. I never questioned this this conclusion. Okay. I think too great a scientific objectivity can make you blind. What do you think now? I think that that was one of the purest encounters with mystery that I have ever had in my life. Mm. It makes me wonder about who we are, what's possible for us, uh, how this world really operates. Right? I have no answers, right. but I have a lot of questions, and those questions have helped me to live better than any answers I might find. Hmm. You know, something that I found interesting in, when you write about working with physicians, that you, you try to make them comfortable with loss and to understand that as a part of their, uh. lo- their jobs, their lives, their working lives. But again, I mean, when you know, you're talking about physicians, but you end up making interesting observations that apply to all the rest of us about loss. Talk to me about you, what you've learned about loss. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, you, I mean, here's now, this. Now, now we're going to initiate a, a five-hour. <laughs> I know. Well, all right. Then I'll give you, I mean, here's something. Smaller, Krista. Okay. okay. Well, smaller. <laughs> here, here's the sentence that I wrote down. and <sighs> The way we deal with loss shapes our capacity to be present to life more than anything else. The way we protect ourselves from loss may be the way in which we distance ourselves from life. I think this is absolutely correct. That is such a shocking thought, really. I think it's correct. I also think that no one is comfortable with loss. Mm-hmm. That being that we're a technological culture, our um, wish or our, our first response, let's put it this way, our first response to loss is to try and fix it. When we are in the presence of a loss that cannot be fixed, um, which is a great many losses, we feel helpless and uncomfortable and we have a tendency to run away, either emotionally or actually distance ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And um, fixing is too small a strategy to deal with loss. Right. You know. Um, what we teach the students is something very simple. The medical students? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We teach them the power of their presence, of simply being there and li- listening 
and witnessing another person and caring about another person's loss, letting it matter, letting it matter. And an extraordinary, do you want to hear a lovely little story sure. out of the mm-hmm. medical school course? Mm-hmm. We do a six hours on loss, two, three-hour sessions, and the students have a very simple instruction, which is they are asked to remember a story of, their, of loss from their own lives, and loss, let's put it differently, uh, a time when things didn't go their way, when mm-hmm. uh, they were disappointed, mm-hmm. when uh, they lost a dream or a relationship or even a family member. Right. Right? A death. Mm-hmm. You know? They get to choose that. And then they spend six hours in small groups talking about their loss. And the group has one instruction listen generously. Mm-hmm. Now, prior to this exercise, we do another exercise with them where we ask them to remember a time of, of disappointment and loss and to remember someone who helped them. What did that person do? What did they say? What message did they deliver that was helpful to them at a hard time in their lives? And then we ask them, uh, and they, they write these, these things down very concretely. And then we ask them to remember a time of loss in their lives and remember someone who wanted to help them but was not of help to them. Hmm. What did that person hmm. do and say, and what message did they deliver, and how did they deliver the message? Hmm. And they write that down. And then we make a big list. What are all the things that helped? Right? Listen to me for as long as I needed to talk. Brought me cookies. <laughs> talk to me in mm-hmm. the same way after my loss as they did before my loss. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, sat with me touched me, brought me food, right? What were the things that didn't help? Gave me advice without knowing the full story. Uh, Made me feel that the loss was my fault. (laughs) And they make this big list. So we gather up the wisdom about what helps loss to heal from a group of about 100 students and faculty the human wisdom, and it's all very simple stuff. And then we say, look, a hundred people just said this helped them. You can do this. Let's try it out. And we put them in small groups, and we have them tell each other their stories of loss for six hours. It sounds like a long time. It isn't. And the only instruction is listen generously. Hmm. So people get an experience of what it's like to be listened to Hmm. for as long as you need to talk and what it's like to listen to other people, what happens to other people when you listen to them. And, of course, people find their perspective. They find their strength. They're not alone with with their situation. Sometimes these stories are very, very deeply, powerfully moving. Yeah. And the losses are large. So... Here's the little story that I wanted to share with you. Um, A young man called me in between these sessions and said he wanted to tell me uh, a story of something that happened with his um, with his patient that morning. And you know these are these are first and second year students. 
they have the experience of taking histories from, from what they, real patients. Sort of medical histories yeah. from their patients. Yeah, medical uh-huh. histories from real uh-huh. patients. So he was assigned this patient, was his second patient, and she came in with a police officer, and he did not realize, he's so unsophisticated, he didn't realize what that probably meant. Well, one, it meant that she was under arrest. And um, she appeared to be a young girl. Hmm. And uh, he he began to to take the 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 history from her, and he quickly discovered that um, she had been on the streets for many years and had been a heroin addict and a prostitute. And as this story started to emerge, as he's taking the history, he became more and more uncomfortable. He'd never met anybody like her. He didn't know how to. He felt he didn't know how to talk to someone like this, and he couldn't connect to her and he didn't quite know what to do and he became more and more nervous as she was telling her story you know mm-hmm. in in the form of her history and he became so nervous that when he came to ask for the family history he um he asked the wrong question and he said tell me about your childhood and she told him a, tri- a story of, of sexual abuse, physical abuse. Uh, so was he supposed to abuse. ask who was your father, or did you yeah, have siblings? Yeah, the illnesses of your father. <laughs> okay. Did you have and colds? This, yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. And this starts to pour out, uh-huh. Krista. And then he said, "Oh, Rachel," he says, "I was over my head." He said, "In in two minutes," he says to me on the phone. Mm-hmm. He says, "So I left the room." I said, what do you mean? You got up and left? And he said, oh, no, no, no. He said, I was still sitting there. He said, but in my mind, I left the room and I said, I've got to find my attending physician. He'll know what to do. <laughs> and he couldn't think of a way to get out of the room to, to go and find his attending. And then he remembered the exercise that he had done the week before of listening to the stories of loss of his colleagues, the other students. And how helpful it had been to him to have people listen to him when he talked about the death of his grandma. And the effect that listening seemed to have on the other students. And he said to himself, well, I could listen. So he unfolded his arms and legs, he said, and he leaned forward and he started to listen to her. And she talked for about eight minutes, he said, seven or eight minutes. And the same thing started to happen that happened with the students he suddenly had a deep appreciation of her strength. Hmm. Of course she was a prostitute. I mean, she's been out on the street alone since she was about seven. How else would she stay alive but how strong she had been to find a way to stay alive? And of course she used heroin. What kind of pleasure was there in this li- in her life? Hmm. Naturally, you know. And he, he began to have this respect for her just like he had for his fellow students when they were talking about their losses. And at the very end, she had looked to him and said, "Um, I've never told this story to another person, doctor. And I said, oh, what did you say? And he said, oh, he said, I said, thank you. I am so honored. That is a beautiful story. It's a perfect story of the healing relationship. He cannot fix her life. What he can do is restore to her her sense of dignity and her value as a human being. 
which may give her perhaps, who knows, a place, a little place, but a place to stand to maybe do something different. Who knows? Again, it takes me back to how we began talking about the power of stories in human lives and your analogy that the stories are the flesh we put on the bones of the facts yeah. about our lives. And yeah. I, you know, I also hear, I think it's so powerful to um, just to think about this obvious fact, but again, one of these obvious facts we don't name very often, that loss is not just catastrophic death or it's it's that there are many different kinds of losses in our lives all the time and then this kind of stunning idea that you bring forth that the way we deal with those losses large and small can really help or get in the way of the the way we deal with the rest of our lives with with what we have right not just what we've lost i think this is so i really do i feel let me put this most people try to hold on to the thing that is no longer part of their lives. And they stop themselves in their lives in that way. Hmm. I have come to see loss as a st- stage in a process. It's not the bottom line. It's not the end of the story. What happens next is very, very important. And, you know, people respond to losses in different ways. When I first became ill, I was enraged. I hated all the well people. Hmm. I felt that I was a victim and this was unfair. I was angry for about 10 years. I think all of that anger was my will to live, Hmm. expressed in a very negative way. And people often are angry in the setting of a terrible loss. Uh, They often feel envious of other people. And this is a starting place. Hmm. But over time, things evolve and change. And at the very least, people who have lost a great deal can recognize that they are not victims, they are survivors. They are people who have found the strength to move through something unimaginable to them, perhaps, in the past. And just asking people that question, you have suffered a really deep loss. What have you called upon for your strength? Hmm. Most people haven't even noticed their strength. They're completely focused on On their pain, Mm -hmm. on their pain. Mm -hmm. And isn't that natural, Krista? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell me what the Jewish mystical worldview of your grandfather that's also part of your story, how that sheds light on this or explains this aspect of being human to you. What, loss? Yeah, just this, these sort of nitty-gritty facts about being human and how difficult it can be um, and how interesting well, also. Is. Well, let's put, I was just going to say, it really is the best way to spend the time, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the only game in town. Yeah. Um, oh, I think that that's too complicated a question okay. for me. Okay. Um, 
Well, then let me bring it down to earth a bit. You just talked about resources people draw on, and I wonder, is is Judaism um, a resource for you? I don't want to answer that question okay. uh, publicly. Okay. That's right. a very private thing. Okay. I guess, you know, what I love to give people is a sense of how these traditions can really throw light on how we all live and what we live with. Um, that's that's really what I'm trying to get at. Just, you know, maybe what if I asked you what your grandfather would say about loss? Or how did he I, I don't. Okay. That I don't know. All right. okay. You know, here, remember, I'm not a, a person who is a, a figure in religious no, life. I know, I know. Or do I, nor do I write about religion. Yeah. Um, I think... I'm just thinking of the letters that I've received over the years, Mm -hmm. uh, literally thousands of them, from people of all different religions. Yeah. And the stories speak to them in the context of their religion. Whatever their religion may be. Whatever their religion Mm -hmm. is. Well, because this, and that, this is and, spiritual. You know, the story, it's, it's so, to me, amazing. Um, a lot of the letters, a good percentage of them, maybe 20% of them, are from pastors of various sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, Christian uh, priests pastors. And Christian mm-hmm. pastors mm-hmm. And, and also rabbis mm-hmm. who talk about using the stories in, in their uh, sermons. And how and thank me for the stories and and one one a lovely man in Oklahoma City uh, I I'm as as well known to his congregation as as he is <laughs> uh, he 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 has used literally dozens and dozens of the stories for to, to as taking off points for his sermon right I think something there's something. Very hopeful all the way through your writing, even when it is about loss and facing death, um, the hard, dark side of being human. I mean, you do insist, and I'm not sure that modern psychiatry insists on this, that integrity is, is achievable for everyone. That you see it come to people, and sometimes it comes to people in crisis. You say wholeness th- is never lost, it is only forgotten. Mm-hmm. But I think you're using integrity in a way that's a little different than the way that Okay, I well, use what's, it. A, what's a better word? What, what do you, you're, is it wholeness you're talking about? Wholeness mm-hmm. includes all of our wounds, mm-hmm. it includes all of our vulnerabilities, mm-hmm. it is our authentic self. And it doesn't sit in judgment on our wounds or our vulnerabilities. It simply says, this is the way we connect to one another. Often we connect through our wounds, through the wisdom we have gained, the growth that has happened to us because we have been wounded allows us to be of help to other people. Okay. So it's not a moral judgment. Integrity simply means what is true. To live from the place in you that has the greatest truth. And that truth is always evolving as well. Right. (laughs) Right. Like that story that doesn't have endings, but takes the time of our lives. Yeah. 
Yeah, and when I say a story doesn't have an ending, um, for example, part of my story is you telling your little boy the story of the birthday of the world. <laughs> That's also part of my grandfather's story. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And your little boy has never met my grandfather. But perhaps my grandfather will be woven into his life in some way. It may be a very small way, or it may not. I don't know. But in that sense, no one's story is ever finished. Hmm. I want to look behind the glass and see if there are questions. We just have a few more minutes, I feel. Mm-hmm. Okay. 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 Just wondering if you could say something about, um, all right, you were told 52 years ago that you would, <laughs> you would die by the age of 40. <laughs> yes. Um, tell, me, tell me about your illness now, about your health and where you are sort of physically and spiritually at this point in your life. How old are you? I can ask that. Can't How I? old am I? Yes. yes, I can certainly tell you. I was 67. Okay. I am 67. Okay. I've been dead these past 27 years. <laughs> <laughs> right. No. Well, you know, actually, my, my illness was an encounter with one of the deepest mysteries, I think, that's part of human nature, which is the will to live. Mm -hmm. And um, having had this personal encounter with the will to live, which is different than the wish to live. It's different. The will to live uh, is in every, every living thing, in everyone. It's something primal, isn't it? Prime. It's something almost cellular. Mm -hmm. It can't be measured. It's beyond the reach of science. Mm -hmm. But it, it sure can be witnessed. And it's inspiring and powerful and very deeply mysterious. Mm -hmm. I had the experience just the year, and you know, you wonder about the randomness of an experience like this. The year before I was diagnosed, I was 14, uh, I was walking up Fifth Avenue with my friends on Saturday morning, shopping. You know, we were 14-year-old kids. And uh, one of us spotted two little blades of grass growing through the New York City sidewalk. Not through a crack, but right through the cement. <laughs> and, you know, people who... I've seen this in, in other places since then, things like this. But we were astounded. I mean, we were 14 years old. We were sophisticated, though. We were New Yorkers. We'd never seen this kind of power before. And I remember how, how small they were and how green and how tender, you know, new grass. Yeah. And it seemed to me like some sort of a, a, a miracle, this, this ability of life to break through obstacles. <laughs> and that, that innate drive for full expression, if you will, is in us all. Sometimes it may enable us to survive an illness, Sometimes it may enable us to grow beyond the limitations of an illness that we live with, but it's there in everybody. Right. 
And you've, you're very, very aware of that in your own life. Is that what you're saying? Oh, certainly. The power of that. I mean, I, I live with significant um, physical problems. I've lived with them for years. You know, when I travel on an airplane, uh, my clothes and makeup are a very small part of what I take with right. me. <laughs> right. I have all sorts of equipment and mm-hmm. medicine and all of this. And um, this is the conditions under which I live. Um, I give it as much time as it needs, not one minute more and not one minute less. Mm. I wonder if there's another story you would like to tell that comes to mind um, just out of this conversation we've been having. Maybe something that's happened to you lately, I don't know. That kind of putting you on the spot. Oh, it makes me think. Um, I actually, before we, we go, I certainly want to express my appreciation to you, Krista. What a, a delight to speak with you both on the phone before, you know, when we spoke, uh, actually it's almost a month ago yeah, now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, at least. And today, um, I hate being interviewed. Oh, you do? Hate it, hate it, hate it. <laughs> I am usually talking to someone who has no interest whatsoever in mm. what we're talking about and is simply trying to get the best whatever, or who knows. It it feels so dead that I can't connect to the thing in me that talks. Mm. And it's been a real pleasure to spend this time. Well, I believe in the power and the mystery of conversation. I really believe. (laughs) And it's connected to a lot of the things we've been talking about. So... Oh, gosh. What are you working on now? What are you writing these days? Actually, I'm, I'm mostly writing articles, mm-hmm. uh, things of that sort. Uh, I think about writing another book. That's a major um, yeah. commitment. Yeah. It means moving your whole life around. Yeah. What else can I tell you? Oh, let me share with you um, uh, a lovely poem. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, the ways, well, let, let's, let's step back. Uh, curing is the work of experts. I mean, that's what we've been talking about yeah. here. Curing is the work of experts. Healing is the work of human beings. We heal ourselves. We heal one another. We enable each other to grow, not only in spite of an illness, but because of it. Mm-hmm. Right? So all of this. And the ways in which we help one another, are very old and very powerful, and they've lost none of their power (laughs) over thousands of years. We get our students to rewrite a mission statement, a personal Hippocratic Oath in this course. And they write about what it is that they want their medicine to be. (laughs) They don't write about science. They often write about love and about... um, being used well by, by, by life and by other people. is very powerful. And this is one of these mission statements written by a young man um, many years ago now, five, five or six, in our course. And he wanted to be a surgeon, and he says I, he dedicates this um, to his future patients. Hmm. Right? And it goes like this. May you find in me the mother of the world, 
May my hands be a mother's hands, my heart be a mother's heart. May my response to your suffering be a mother's response to your suffering. May I sit with you in the dark like a mother sits in the dark. May you know through our relationship that there is something in this world that can be trusted. Mm. Very simple, very old, very powerful. We are each enough to heal other people. Thank you so much. This is just such a privilege and a pleasure. I can't tell you. I feel exactly the same, Just been looking forward to it so much. I I hope we meet someday. Well, I'm sure we will. (laughs) I have no doubt of that. And if we we don't Uh, just chance across each other, I will will call you when I'm coming out. If you're ever in this area and I discover it and you haven't called me, I'm going to be mad. I I will be out in that area one of these days. And I I will try to come see you. I'd love to do that. Good. Okay. It's a deal. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. Have a good vacation. Okay. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.